0: If you uh, imagine this scene, if you will, uh, say a father takes his child and goes outside, and it's raining, not the sleet and snow we see now, but it's raining, and he points to the rain that's falling from the sky and he says, son, that's H2O. And then that same father takes Junior inside and he shows him the ice in the freezer and he says, Junior, that's H2O. And then he puts the kettle on the stove and he turns the heat up and the steam starts coming out and he says, Junior, that's H2O. Now you can imagine Junior might be a little confused. It is a little confusing, but the dad's point is that molecularly, even though we don't call each of those phases water, molecularly it's the same thing. It's all H2O. It's in different states just based on its temperature. It's confusing to Junior because Dad's calling, using the same term, to call things that appear different the same thing. It appears confusing. Or, Imagine you were walking the streets of Brisbane, Australia. I don't know if you guys remember this. I saw it in my uh, online news forums last year. You're walking in Brisbane, Australia, and you see a young mother with two children. One's black and one's white. And you strike up a conversation with her, and she tells you that these are both her children, and that not only both are her children, they're twins. One's black and one's white. This was really true. This happened to Tasha Knight, is Jamaican English heritage and her husband, Michael Singerl, is German. And it says they were blown away when they saw how different their twin daughters, Alicia and Jasmine, were. Alicia's eyes were brown and her hair was dark. Jasmine's eyes were blue and her hair was white. They don't look like siblings, but they are, and they're not only siblings, they're twins. This I don't someone tried to estimate the odds, it's high, about this being able to occur, but that's that's what occurred. This made news around the world. I don't know if you remember seeing any of it. Anyway, this is all just to introduce the topic for this morning, which is week two of our seven-week series, looking at the Trinity, looking at God Himself. And this is the series title is God Is, this week's God Is Trinity. Or we could say God is unity in plurality, or we could turn that around. Does this sound boring, Bryce? Or God is, tr- uh, God is plurality in unity uh, that's the thought. Uh, yeah, I know, we're going to work, th- we're, we'll wade through a little bit here on the front end, and hopefully in the, in the second half, uh, some of this uh, is more meaningful because it makes sense. It makes sense to the world you and I live in. Uh, any attempt to talk about God as a trinity does appear a little bit confusing, and it appears a little contradictory. Uh, you say that there's one God but this one God exists in three persons. No, it's not many gods, it's one God. No, it's, it's not one God singularly, but it's one God in three persons. It appears contradictory and confusing. I suppose on some level it is. The truth is, though, you cannot read the Scriptures and the description God gives of Himself apart from understanding God as one God in three persons. You just can't get through the Scriptures without this. And also, if you look back historically, you'll see, I believe, that any significant heresy, that is, any significant diversion from the truth that the church understood historically has erred at some point related to the Trinity. So, if you're interested... By the way, we are, we are in just... Scratching the surface is an overstatement on what we're doing this morning as far as the Trinity. There's all kinds of stuff you can look up. But historically... When someone made a claim about the person of Christ or God Himself, the church sat down and said, is this the way we understand the Scriptures? Is this what, how God has declared what's true about Himself? And so out of those emergencies or crises has arisen the creeds. The Christians sat down and said, this is what we understand the church believes based on the revelation God has given in the Scriptures. So you go back not only to the Scriptures themselves, but to the creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed in the 200s, the Athanasian Creed in the 400s, the Nicene Creed in the three or 400s, sorry about that. If you go post-Reformation, the 39 articles from the Anglican and Episcopalian side of the church, or in 1571, if you look at the Westminster Convention, if you're Calvinist persuasion from 1643, all of them affirm the same truths that there's one God who exists in three persons. Not many gods, one God, but not one God singularly, one God, in three persons. That's the teaching of the scriptures. It's the historic affirmation of the church as well. And Bryce, going back to theology. You know, the trouble with theology is that it sounds boring, but it's kind of like if you read, uh, if you've got medicine bottles at home, you know, if you read the instructions on the label, you could get something that heals you or helps sustain your life. But if you didn't read the label and you took something, it could harm you, in some cases it could kill you, and theology is like that. Um, You've got to read the label, because what you believe, the Scriptures affirm, ultimately defines your destiny. It defines who and what you are and where you're going, what your future and time and eternity is going to be like. So theology is important. We're going to start, we're going to work through on the front half just some Scriptures, and as I say, this is not even scratching the surface. If I asked any of you this morning to come up with one verse that affirms the Trinity off the top of your head, you'd probably have trouble doing so. But the truth is, if you just start your study and you start looking at the Scriptures, you'll see that this comes up over and over and over and over again. We're going to start. You can follow if you like. These are all brief, but you can follow along as much or as little as you like. First, based on the Scriptures, it affirms that, Scriptures individually affirm that God the Father is God, that God the Son Jesus is God, and that God, the Holy Spirit, is God. Individually, each is affirmed as deity. Uh, Psalm 45, 7, the psalmist is actually talking about the Messiah and the Messiah is God. And so he says, You love righteousness and hate wickedness, therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions. God there, God the Father, is God, the one who is over the Messiah. This will come up here and again in just a second, but... God is over all. God the Father is over all. He's God even over the key leader who would come in history. Tied to this same theme in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Paul's describing what's going to occur in the future. And he says basically that Jesus will come back to the earth. He'll put down all rebellion against God. And that when that's done, it says... He will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. He'll hand over, Jesus, God the Son, the Messiah, will hand over the earth to God the Father. God the Father is God. Most of the times, not always, but most of the times when you read the scriptures, Old or New Testament, it uses the term, the simple term God, it's talking about God the Father. So God the Father is God. Related to the Son, we looked at John 1.1 1, 1 last week, and I'll read it again today. In the beginning was the Word. John's telling us about Jesus, and he describes Jesus as the Logos, or the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's first sentence, the opening to his Gospel, tells you that Jesus is God. In Philippians 2.6, Paul says the same thing. He's describing Jesus... And, you know, uh, we've talked about, uh, briefly, creeds. You know, you get these crises when someone makes a claim historically about Jesus. You had these going on while the epistles were being written. So when you read something like Philippians 2, you're reading Paul's response to claims that were being made during his lifetime about what Jesus was or wasn't. He was an angel or he appeared to be a man, but he really wasn't. You see the same thing in John's epistles uh, opposing what was called Gnosticism, this thought that uh, knowledge reigned supreme in the Greek world. That was the key thought. And and so Jesus, God couldn't really become a real man. And so when you read in John's epistles, John 1 especially, uh, we saw Jesus, we heard Jesus, we handled Jesus. This is all responding to crises going on in the lifetime of the folks who authored the New Testament. Paul in Philippians 2 responding in this charge that maybe Jesus was just some kind of angel says of Jesus, who being in very nature God. He says, don't get this wrong. He's not an angel. He's not some sub-God being. Jesus is in His very nature. He is God. Also, if you look in the Old Testament, it's a little confusing if you read a verse in the New Testament that says no one has seen God at any time. And then you go to the Old Testament that says these people saw God. How do you reconcile that? The, The implication seems to be this. No man has seen God the Father at any time. But Jesus, God the Son, even before He came to earth in the incarnation, Jesus, God the Son, was the one who walked with Adam in the garden, that Adam and Eve heard and saw. Or the other appearances where it's called the angel of the Lord shows up. The angel of the Lord speaks to people, interacts with people, claims to be God, accepts worship as God. Who is it? It's not God the Father, it's God the Son. So again, just the use of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, not always, but pretty consistently represents Jesus before the incarnation. Jesus, the Son, is God. And then the Spirit from Genesis 1-2, you remember in verse 1, God speaks the creation into existence. In verse 2 it says, "...the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters." Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.2, the Spirit of God is the active force arranging, if you will, the creation itself. God, the Holy Spirit, is God. Acts 5, uh, 3 and 4, interesting. Remember in the early church, they had these financial needs for families who didn't have enough support. And so various individuals were selling their land. And then they were giving the apostles those funds so the apostles would redistribute them so everyone's needs were met. Trouble arose because one couple wanted to appear important to the church, so they conspired between each other. They were going to sell their land. They were going to give part of the proceeds to the apostles for distribution. They were going to withhold the rest. The apostles didn't care what they did with their land, nor did God, so to speak, but it was they were lying. So they presented the funds to the apostles and said, here's all the money from our land. And Peter says this, Acts 5, verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart "...so that you have lied to the Holy Spirit." And then in the next verse he says, "...you have not lied to men, but to God." When you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. God, the Holy Spirit, is God. Individually, you see the Scriptures affirming that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Uh, Collectively, you also see God speaking about Himself in this plural sense. If you go back to Genesis 1-1 again, <clears throat> Excuse me. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the Hebrew, we mentioned this a week ago, but the Hebrew is actually plural. Elohim is plural form of God. If you're going to say God singular in Hebrew, it would be L, E L. L is God. This could have read, in the beginning, El created the heavens and the earth, but it doesn't. It says Elohim, God plural. If you read commentaries or if you read uh, Bible dictionaries or other things, you will hear authors say, This does not speak of God in plural because even though plural is used, it's really what we call the plural of majesty. That is, you know, if you listen to a British monarch and the monarch would say, We want to be alone. The monarch speaks, (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. You know, I'm fine till I get in this building. And then the phlegm just starts flowing and I'm coughing and hacking the rest of the time. So sorry about that. I've taken my meds and it's not helping. Um, You know, the king might say, we want to be alone because the king, in a sense, in his person is the nation. So the king might say, we want to be alone. He doesn't mean that he's God. He just means he's associated with others larger than himself. (coughs) This thought is read back into the Hebrew scriptures. The problem with the thought is it's not used of God elsewhere. Thank you. It's not used of God elsewhere. <clears throat> it's not used of kings elsewhere in the Hebrew Old Testament. I think it's fallacious reasoning, and I think it's one more instance where we take things as we understand them today and we read them back into the text. The use of Elohim in Genesis 1-1 seems to imply from the very beginning that God exists in plurality, Elohim. Besides that, if you go into the, just the next chapters, Genesis three twenty two. God says when He's going to create man, He says, let us make man in our image. Genesis eleven seven. 7. Let us go down and confuse the language of man at Babel. Isaiah 6, 8. Who will go for us when Isaiah is in heaven and sees God? God is using plural pronouns for Himself. And again, some people will try and make the explanation that this is the same thing. Plurality related to majesty, I, I just don't buy it. I don't find it convincing. And frankly, with the rest of the scriptures, it appears to make sense that this is simply God showing from the very beginning that He's one God existing in three persons. If you Go to Matthew 28, 19. When Jesus is leaving the earth and giving His disciples, <clears throat> excuse me, that final commission before He returns to heaven, He tells them that for those who believe in Him, they are to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're not baptized to God alone. They're baptized to the Trinity. When a Christian affirms faith in Christ and declares that publicly, it's declared to the Trinity, to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I love the benediction. At the close of 2 Corinthians in 13, verse 14, Paul says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, i.e., the Father, And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And you guys have to remember, for Jews, Deuteronomy 6, 5 or 6, the Shema, was kind of the hallmark of all Israel and all Jews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There's not many gods, there's one. For Jews, and of course all the disciples here are Jews, for the Jews to be associating the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together, this would be blasphemous, and it would be idolatry if they didn't understand them each to be God. If they didn't understand each of them individually to be the God, the one God of the Shema, they could not use these references together. If you look in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14 through 17, it's the same thing. It's very specific there generally about the the union of the Father and the Son, but it also brings in the Spirit that Jesus says, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father, and I'm going to come back to you after I've gone to heaven. And who comes back? The Spirit, the union of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is seen in Jesus' upper room discourse. And then last along this line, Paul places the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in continuity with each other several times. Just a couple. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14, he says, God chose you, you're sanctified by the Spirit, to share the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, Paul's talking about the fact that there's these diverse uh, gifts given in the the church and the body of Christ. He says, but even though there's this diversity, it's the same Spirit, it's the same Lord, it's the same God. You've got the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. Ephesians 2.18, I won't read, and 4. 4-6, through same thing. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit all put together in the same phrases. The scriptures are clear that God identifies himself and describes himself as one God in three persons. Not many gods but one, but not one God singularly, one God existing in three different persons. And you cannot read the text of the scriptures and make sense of God apart from understanding as one God in three persons. Now, uh, that's kind of all up here. And, and frankly, though, you can't know God as He means to be known apart from understanding God as the Trinity. This is important. If you start saying, well, how does that affect me where I live? What are the implications of that? Let me start with this. God's unity in plurality affects you and I in all the relationships we have, both vertical between us individually and God and corporately and God and also horizontally between us and each other because we're created in God's image. God is one God in three persons. And when He created man, He says, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. I don't know if you caught that, but... In the image of God, singular, He singular created him singular, male and female, He created them plural. In Genesis five one and two, when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and blessed them. If you try and figure out what does it mean to be made in the image of God, you'll hear things like being made in God's image means we're authority on the earth. We're the highest pinnacle, if you will, of authority on earth. That's true. If you say we're created in God's image and that means that we're creative, sub-creators, that's true. But if you miss this, you've missed the key because this is what it says in context. To be created in, in the image of God means unity in plurality. It references the spirit, the triunity of God because when God says He created us in His image, He says male and female and children. So the family, families are, are meant to be, if you will, reflections of one God and three persons, one family with three functionally different parts, if you will, husbands, wives, and children. He says, uh, be fruitful and increase in number. It anticipates children. So in a family, you've got one entity, one family, but there's three different components within that family. Fathers, mothers, and children. And this reflects the unity. If you don't understand anything else about being created in the image of God, it's this thought. God's one God in three persons. God created us, male and female. He created us in plurality. We reflect Him primarily in that sense. In fact, if you read the creation narrative, you guys know every time God speaks something, He creates the light, He creates the night and the day. And do you remember the phrase, after every creative act He says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. But there's one thing in this in the narration of creation that God says is not good. And on the sixth day, all of creation's created, Adam's standing there in the garden, the pinnacle of creation, and God looks around and says, you know, there's one thing missing. This is not good. What's not good? Adam being alone is not good. Now, of course, God knew this isn't news. He's not looking at thing and thinking, gosh, I missed something here. The point is for Adam, it's not for God. What does God do? He has all the animals march in front of Adam. Why? On one hand, Adam names them. He's the authority. The authority names his subjects. So Adam names all the animals. But what's the other thread here? Adam's seeing all those pairs of animals go by. He sees a male and a female of all those animals going by. Because God wants him to understand what God already knows, that Adam by himself is incomplete. Now, Adam could have existed eternally in the Garden of Eden without Eve, just he and God, and, you know, that would have been good, right? You know, you and God, this would be a good thing. But God looks at it and says, this creation is incomplete. It's not what it should be. And it's only when Eve is created that the creative act is finished, that it's totally over, that God looks at the whole thing and says it's good. You and I were created in God's image and part of the implication of that is we're never meant to be alone. Humanity is created for fellowship with others, with God vertically and with each other. When you trust in Christ, where does this go? What does this look like? When you trust in Christ, the fact that God is a trinity means that you enter relationship into the family of God, as it were, vertically again, thinking vertically. You enter a family of relationships. So just think about this for a minute. When you're saved, when you place your trust in Christ, you have God as your father. He's the best father ever. He has all your best interests in mind. You're now his son or your daughter. He says in the scriptures he adopts us as if legally he makes sure everybody knows where he is. But he also causes us to be born again so that genetically if you will we're his children as well. So we have a relationship as a Christian with God as our father. But then also we have a relationship individually with Jesus. Now <clears throat> we say the Lord Jesus Christ. That's It's his title. He's the Messiah and Savior. He's king. This is all appropriate. But You know a little closer to home, he's also your brother. This sounds a little odd. I'm not sure why when we talk about God as father, this sounds somewhat natural. Maybe it's because we use it frequently. Jesus is also your brother, your older brother. He affirms this in Hebrews when he says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. So you and I enter a family relationship with the Trinity in which we have an older brother. We have God as our father, best father ever. But we also have Jesus as our older brother. And Jesus uh, is a cheerleader, if you will, for us. Do you know that He stands before God, our Father, our common Father, and He represents your interest and mine to our common Father? When you blow it and Satan accuses you of sins that you commit, do you know that your older brother, Jesus, is there as your advocate on your behalf representing your interests? You and I have a relationship with Jesus, not just a Savior, as important as that primarily is, but also with Jesus as our brother. And then we have a, an individual relationship with the Holy Spirit. You know that as you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit himself, God the Spirit, takes up residence in you. You're someone and you're something you were not before, and God lives in you. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who energizes you to grow spiritually and to understand things spiritually spiritually. In fact, I love the thoughts too. The Spirit gives voice to our prayers when we run out of words, Romans 8. The Spirit lifts us up as we praise. He confirms to ourselves and to the world that we're God's possession. Ephesians 1, we're stamped with the Holy Spirit, just like an ancient document would be stamped with with a wax seal. So we individually have entered into relationships with God our Father, Jesus our brother, and the Holy Spirit, the one who indwells us who energizes us for all spiritual life. So it's not just we know God, we know the Father, we know the Son, and we know the Spirit. Individually, we have relationships with each member of the Trinity. Also, on the horizontal plane, though, think of this. Because we're created in God's image and we're meant for relationships with others, the great majority of us are meant to be married. You probably know this but the great majority of us are meant to be married. You can read a passage like 1 Corinthians 7 in which Paul says, gosh, I wish you were all like me, single, committed, devoted to Christ. That's my sole concern. But, you know, that's the rare exception in the Scriptures. And I have not met many adults who tell me they're called to be single. I have met many single adults who told me they'd like to be married and aren't. And for most of us, God means for us to be married. This is appropriate because for most of us, it's like Adam without Eve. God looks at us and says, I meant you, by creation, by bearing my image, I mean for you to be in these close, intimate relationships with someone who's like you, but different. Someone who's like you, but different. You know, in the Trinity, the same essence. Equal deity, equal glory, equal power, but... Different functions. I'll probably forget to say this later, but you know the Father within the Trinity they share most things equally, but they are diverse in operation and function. So typically, what you see is the Father is the one who initiates, the Son is the one who carries out the Father's will, and it's done by the Spirit. That's the functional roles that you'll see displayed as you read about the Trinity in the Scriptures. <clears throat> in marriage. God means most of us to get married to someone who's like us, equal in humanity, equal in worth before God, but different from us. And in marriage, we we play different roles. But this is exactly like the Trinity. Some people will tell you, this is an aside and I apologize almost for even for making it, but feminism, the feminist argument that male and female are equal in function is a lie from hell. Because what it actually castigates, it castigates the trinity. The trinity has existed from eternity past into eternity future, equal in glory, deity, you name it, divergent in function. Guys, the reason that husbands do things different than wives, than children is because we reflect the trinity. And if you try and make men and women absolutely the same, it's ridiculous because you're arguing against creation. You're slamming the Trinity. God has created us different but equal because He's different but equal. So in marriage, we're taking two people of equal essence, as it were, but different function, and we put them together and they form a family and they have children. God means most people to get married because we're created in His image. And also, God means most couples to have children This is is included in the created in God's image in Genesis 1 and Genesis 5. Having children is what God desires. We reflect the Trinity in having children. The husband, the wife, and the child represents, maybe in some dim form, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is normal. And, And God's love, in a sense for Himself, reproduces itself in creation and humanity. And a husband's love And a wife's love for each other reproduces itself in love with their children. So families, one family, with different uh, parts, if you will, husbands, wives, and children, reflects the Trinity. God never means us to be the same. We're not created to be the same. We're created to be the same in essence, but not in function. We're diverse in function because the Trinity is diverse in function. Besides, though, marriage and the family... Whether or not you ever get married or whether you are married and have a great family life, God means for you and me to interact with others, again, because we're created in His image. If you find guys, especially, who think they can get along without meaningful relationships with others, they're kidding themselves. This is probably why the women are having cookie exchanges and the guys aren't. (laughs) Or maybe the guys would golf. I don't know what that would look like. But, you know, women typically, a little bit more given to this, uh, to fellowship. But because we're created in God's image, we're meant to have meaningful relationships with others. And for want of them, you cannot become the people in Christ God means you to be. can't happen. Because Adam being alone wasn't good. And you and I, even if we have great family relationships, if we're in a great marriage and we love our kids and all that's great, God still means for us to be having healthy interaction with other Christians in which we're encouraging them. They're encouraging us. We're shaping and we're encouraging, we're exhorting each other to be the people God means us to be. You can't grow appropriately apart from that. John Donne in the 15 and 1600s, I don't know if you remember, but he lived during the Black Plague in London, and people are dying right and left. And you know, at each funeral, the church bell would ring. And based on that, Donne writes this great poem. And when she says, don't ask for whom the bell tolls. Why? Well, because it tolls for you. Because no matter who died, no matter how apparently insignificant their life was, they're like a clod on the continent of Europe that's fallen away. And Europe is a little bit the less because it lost something. Well, John Donne says, you're not an island. No man's an island. You can't be. You're created in God's image to fellowship with others. And whether even if you try and live life as an island, you're not. You're Adam alone in the garden. God looks at it and says, not good. This would be my problem with monasticism. Uh, Monasteries through through history and through the ages have done some great things. They've preserved documents, if nothing else. But the thought that you're going to get alone in life and live life apart from the rest of humanity is biblically, in my view, deficient. God means for you and I to interact with others because we reflect His image. Having said this, let me quickly say, because you and I are sinners, we do this poorly. We sin against God. We sin against each other. And so the relationships we have in marriage, between parents and children, between friends, members of the church, they're fractured, they're painful, they're confusing. They're disappointing. I mean, you name it, it's a given because we're sinners and we sin. And those are the folks who are bearing God's image still and supposing to get along with Him and with each other. And just having said that, I say, you know, that's the cards we're dealt with and so that's the game we play. And and I don't mean that uh, in a bad sense. I mean, get over it, forgive others, apologize to others, ask for forgiveness, make the best of it you can, recognizing it's never going to be perfect on earth. Your relationship with God, your relationship with others. It can be, I should say, very good. It can be better than most of us experience. But it takes work because we still live in a sin-fractured world. Our humanity reflects God's image because it's through the interaction of the ones who are the same but different that we express God's image. Let me wind down here. Um, God's, uh, within the Trinity itself, and John, the Upper Room Discourse is the best example of this, the best single place you can see this in the Scripture. The, the interaction of the members of the Trinity towards each other is the pattern you and I have for our interaction with each other. And by that I mean this. God the Father loves the Son and the Spirit. He loves and honors the Son and the Spirit. God the Son Loves and honors the Father and the Spirit. And God the Spirit loves and honors the Father and the Son. They're committed, if you will, to heaping honor and praise on each other. Again, read John's Upper Room Discourse and see the way in which the Father and the Son, especially in that context, talk about honoring, praising each other. The members of the Trinity love and honor each other. And they, in a sense, defer to each other in those functional roles each one of them uniquely holds. And that's the pattern for you and for me. That is, in our relationships, in marriage, in family, in friendships, etc., we're to mirror the members of the Trinity in their love and honor of each other. So when you look at your relationships with others, many of them may not be perfect, and some of them aren't going to be close enough in which you would think this, this plays a role, But in the relationships that you and I have that are ongoing in which we have some investment and others have investment in us, it should display this kind of concern for others' love and honoring each other. We should prefer each other in honor. We should encourage each other in our areas of strength. When the Father initiates something and the Son carries it out and the Spirit is the one that gets the job done, the energy in which that's accomplished, each member of the Trinity is functioning in the air. They're uniquely... Uh, They're not created to. I'm not even sure how to finish the sentence. But in their areas, each one's operating uniquely. We should affirm each other in the ways God's wired us in the strengths we have. We should be encouraging each other in the strengths we have. We should be doing good to each other. The members of the Trinity only do good to each other. They don't backbite. They don't talk each other down, so to speak. They only seek each other's good and honor. In your family... You should eat together and you should talk about the issues of life together. I'll tell you as a father with grown kids, this is, this would be kind of one of the highlights of my life is our meal times together around our table. We discuss everything and anything. We have the best time doing it. And part of it's because we have to work at not offending each other. I had a conversation the other day with one of my unnamed daughters and and, you know, I like to challenge to refine the argument to what are its essential components, and how do you defend that? Not because I'm argumentative, I would argue, but because it's clarifying, it's helpful. I was so pleased that my daughter was able to to not flip out emotionally, and we had this great conversation in which we clarified each other's thinking through this healthy interaction around the dinner table. It's great. If you're a family, you ought to be doing this kind of thing. And you also ought to be each other's cheerleaders. You know it's easy the closer you get to people to take them for granted. But you ought to be, as family members, you ought to be each other's best, greatest cheerleaders. You ought to be encouraging those other members to be doing the things, going the places, meeting the people God uniquely gifted them and set them in a place to do. And then with others, you ought to be, we ought to be fellowshipping with each other. I'm thinking primarily here just in the context of the church, though it's certainly not limited to that. But, you know, we enjoyed uh, last week a great time in fellowship with a couple other families from the church because someone called us and said, hey, come on over. It was, it, was, it was a hoot, and it was fun, it was encouraging. And, you know, you ought to be inviting others, and if others don't invite you, invite yourself to their house. We've done that too. It's all good. But you and I, we are meant to have this kind of fellowship with each other. It's, we're created in God's image, God means for us, to have it we worship one God in three persons and we honor him and we display his likeness best when we live with each other in love and honor let's pray father we tread on thin ice when we try to describe the infinite and the eternal But Lord, you've expressed things that are true about yourself, and we want to see those and affirm those so that we can know you and honor you as you should be. And Lord, you are life, and the better we know you, the the more fully we comprehend you to the limited degrees that we can, is the more experience of life we reap. I pray for each one of us that we see you more clearly, that you're one God in three persons, and that Lord, we understand a little bit of the ways that that's reflected in our humanity, in our need for each other. And Lord, that it guides the ways we interact with each other, just as you, within your Trinity, love and honor each other. Lord, help us to make that our goal and our aim, to love and honor each other as well. Lord, help us to give you glory and honor, as is your due, by the way we live this life here, toward you and towards others. In Jesus' name, amen.